Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Generation Anthropocene is supported by Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. Find out more at earth.stanford.edu. We're also supported by Worldview Stanford, whose mission is to create interdisciplinary learning experiences for professionals. To learn more about Worldview, visit worldview.stanford.edu. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we tell stories of people, the planet, and people on the planet. I'm Mike Osborne. Gadolinium? Promethium? Dysprosium? If these names don't ring a bell, perhaps it's because they are not your run-of-the-mill common Earth elements. These are rare Earth elements. But actually, it's a bit of a misnomer to call them rare Earth elements. They're not so rare. However, many of these elements are essential for producing all manner of modern-day technological wizardry. Batteries, self-cleaning ovens, lasers, fiber optics, decoy flares, you name it. Today on the show, we're featuring a conversation between producer Miles Traer and Julie Klinger. Julie is an expert on the international politics of rare earth minerals. The geology is only one part of the story here. As it turns out, the international marketplace has its own set of bizarre dynamics, and Julie is currently writing a book about the emerging issues. Miles begins by asking Julie about an international showdown that happened in the East China Sea. I, I would kind of like the story to start, if you would, with what happened at Senkaku. The big event that happened in 2010 is actually September 7th, 2010. The Japanese Coast Guard took a Chinese fisherman into custody. And the reason that the Coast Guard had taken him into custody is because he had strayed within the 15-kilometer range of the disputed Senkaku or Diaoyu Islands. They lie in disputed territory between Taiwan and Japan. It's not necessarily a sensitive or strategic or secret area at all. It's a place that just has this symbolic significance for both China and Japan. And so what happened was this particular fisherman who was reportedly 
uh, belligerently drunk at the time, ignored calls by the Japanese Ghost Guard to distance himself from the island. And then he reportedly rammed his boat, his fishing boat, into a Japanese Coast Guard vessel. And so the Japanese Coast Guard took him into custody. And so it was interpreted in those regions and certainly discussed in Chinese media as an act of war. This was an act of aggression. And not only that, but it was seen as a unilateral act of escalation that the Japanese Coast Guard had simply apprehended a Chinese national and this was unacceptable. So after after they sort of apprehend him, there's political jockeying, I would imagine, but it takes a weird form. (laughs) Yeah, actually. So apparently what had happened was, you know, folks in, in Beijing and their counterparts in Japan were working to negotiate an expeditious return of the fishermen, Mr. John was his name, back to China. And so what happened was some port and military officials in eastern China decided to take the matter into their own hands. What, you know, while they couldn't themselves go and spring Mr. John from wherever he was being held in in Japan, they could hit Japan really where it hurt. And that is where rare earth elements came into the story. This port or this one area effectively goes rogue for my lack of a better vocabulary. And they're like, yep, we're just going to stop doing this. We're going to stop exporting it. And Beijing didn't know about it. Like what happened? Like what, what were the dominoes that led up to, you know, sort of Japan reacting and the stock market reacting to this? <laughs> right. Okay. So here's what we know. We know that some shipments from a port in eastern China were held up. These were shipments of rare earth oxides bound for Japan. This was not an order from Beijing. This was something that policymakers in Beijing didn't know about until customs officials in Japan inquired with China's customs administrations about these missing shipments that hadn't turned up. Then it came to light that some key people at these ports in eastern China had decided to teach Japan some humility by reminding them of their economic dependence on China. So then what happens? A couple of things happened really quickly. New York Times broke the story that China had embargoed rare earth shipments to Japan. That sounded pretty serious. So a lot of people had to learn very quickly just what the heck rare earths were. And what they found was that they're incredibly important to life as we know it. What happened was uh, the market caught hold of this idea or this rumor that there was a Chinese embargo and, the, and Beijing was engaging in economic warfare with the rest of the world. And, and so, of course, the market did what the market does. It panicked. <laughs> and I'm sure you've seen these really dramatic graphs that show 2,000% price increases for dysprosium and neodymium and what have you, you know, all during the last quarter of 2010. And then on top of that, they are inaccurately called rare earths. So people made the obvious assumption that they're rare. 
And then they put two and two together with the fact that the world is dependent on China at the time for 97% of global production and said, oh, China must have all of the rare earth elements and they're rare. So there's not very many of them. And so therefore we are all dependent on China. This is economic warfare. So with the term rare earth element, you know, you sort of teased it's a misnomer, right? The first word there is a misnomer (laughs) in there. So what is a rare earth element? So the term rare earth elements refers, generally speaking, to 17 chemically similar elements on the periodic table. The core is composed of the lanthanide series, and so that's elements 57 to 71. Really what characterizes the rare earth family, strictly speaking in terms of the lanthanide series, is you know they, they all possess these fabulous magnetic and conductive properties. Some of them have exceptionally high melting points. Others um, convey uh, beautiful colors to glassware and lasers and jewelry (laughs) and light bulbs and that sort of thing. And, you know, it's because of their fantastic magnetic and conductive properties that we've been able to achieve such impressive feats of miniaturization in information technology. So it's thanks to rare earth elements that our computers are the size of your smartphone and not the size of this building. In Japan, um, rare earths are characterized with uh, serial metaphors. So the way it goes is oil is the blood, steel is the body, and rare earths are the vitamins of a modern economy. You know, across the sea in China, they're referred to as the MSG of industry. Do you know where this idea that they were rare came from? Yeah. Actually, it's it's breathtakingly simple where this idea that they're rare came from. You know, when they, when they were discovered, when the first rare earth elements were discovered in Iterby, Sweden, so when Yttrium was first discovered, it was thought to be rare because no one had ever found it anywhere else. So it's breathtakingly simple. But I have a theory that the misnomer endures because the term rare imbues these elements with a kind of political, social, cultural, economic significance that just doesn't really come across in the word praseodymium. For example, why is it that no one, despite the fact that these things exist out in the world, why are they only being pulled up in primarily out of China? I mean, right, it's a vast majority of these rare earths are coming from China. Precisely. And the answer there is more political and economic rather than geological. One of the things that you encountered a lot in, you know, during the panic around rare earth elements in 2010 and then the aftermath as people were trying to make sense of things in 2011 and 2012 was this idea that rare earths were mined in China because China had the rare earths. And it's true that China does have rare earths, but it is not true that all of them are concentrated in China. The issue, though, is that the geological conditions under which rare earths coalesce into mineable deposits are uh, the same geological conditions under which radioactive materials coalesce into mineable deposits. So generally speaking, but not always, rare earth mining can become 
a radioactive waste management situation, which is extraordinarily difficult to do in an environmentally and socially sound manner and extraordinarily expensive. So, you know, uh, the rare earth, the geography of rare earth mining over the 20th and into the 21st century actually followed the trajectory of much heavy and dirty and dangerous industry over the 20th and into the 21st century, you know, where industries that had been established in North America and in Europe went elsewhere in search of, you know, lower labor costs, uh, more relaxed environmental regulations and that sort of thing. I want to transition to, and again, please correct my pronunciation because I am I specialize in getting this wrong, um, <laughs> ba- Bauto? Bauto. Ba- Bauto. Because yeah. um, you, you've been there. Yes. Correct. So you've been to this province mm. and... I was hoping, one, if you could do kind of a little, uh, you know, not time travel, but actual travel, like imagination travel uh, for our audience and kind of paint a scene of what this place looks like, what this place feels like, and then ultimately why this place is so relevant to this particular conversation of rare earth elements. Well, Bauto Municipality is located in the Inner Mongolia Autonomous Region, uh, which stretches across northern China. And to get there, it's actually, it's an easy overnight train ride from Beijing, or it's an hour and a half flight. You know, sometimes, depending on, you know, which newspaper article you're reading, you might come away with an image of, you know, Bauto... Uh, being located out on the sandy deserts of the Mongolian steppe. And that's a little fanciful, to be honest. Um, you know, if you go to Bauto expecting an industrial wasteland, what you will in fact be struck by is glittering high-rises, modern architecture, lots and lots of neon lights, big sculptures, <laughs> that sort of thing. You know, at least when you're traveling from the train station into the heart of the city or from the airport into the heart of the city. There's a lot of money and effort put into making the place just look wonderful. <laughs> but then when you start to look at places where the actual processing is going on, you have two very different, fascinating places located on either end of, of the actual city of Bauto. And, you know, in the east, you have the rare earth high-tech district, you know, which was set aside by the local and provincial government to attract, you know, high-tech industries. So there you have all sorts of Chinese firms. You also have all sorts of international firms and international subsidiaries who are engaged in one part or another of the value-added processing to produce rare earth components you know, that might be used in electronics or in airplanes. And then across the city, you have the, the old Bauto iron and steel industrial complex, which would be, I think, a large format black and white photographer's, you know, holiday. Because it's this sprawling uh, mid-20th century sort of Soviet Chinese industrial complex that just goes on and on and on. And it's giant pipes and billowing red smoke and fire and dirt and all sorts of things. And that's where you start to see, you know, the, the immediate local... Uh, social and environmental and public health impact 
of the rare earth industry. And then, you know, if you travel in any direction south, east, or west from there, you start to get yourself downstream of the industry, of the industrial runoff, and what have you. And that side of things is is where the the rare earth story turns dark pretty fast <laughs> yes. uh at, at least that was that was definitely my read on it but that's not where the mining happens the mining happens actually in Bayou Obo which is maybe oh say 300 kilometers north of Bauto city and the reason you have this distance between the mining site and the industrial site is you know along the southern part of Bauto municipality runs the yellow river and industry needs water so the industry is situated close to water, and the mine is up in the northern part of the municipality near the China-Mongolia border. So, you know, this was a really important uh, strategic industrial heartland, not just for China, but also before the Sino-Soviet split for the Soviet Union. I mean, a lot of, um, you know, it was an important site for China's nuclear weapons program. And so... You know, there was a sense that industry really came first, and you know, that sense was informed by a nationalist commitment to maintain the sovereignty of China, but also to, you know, perpetuate and defend the communist revolution. And so, up through the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s, you know, the local local environmental and public health bureaus were monitoring the uh, pollution situation. And in fact, um, a lot of these documents from the late 70s and early 80s were available in open stacks in, in the library in Bauto. So the information is there. And the problem didn't occur because you know, it didn't occur for ignorance of the magnitude of the problem. But the priorities simply were not around environmental conservation and much more around um, maximizing industrial output. So when when we see rare earths sort of on the whole, and because I think that the next biggest producer, my guess, is Brazil. Am I close? Actually, Australia. Australia. Okay. Mm-hmm. So when when you have like sort of a place like Australia, are they when when you go into mining rare earths, you know, you have economics, you have epidemiology, you have local health, you have global health, and then you also have this massive need or perhaps rephrase, desire for these <laughs> rare earth elements. How have how have nations sort of balanced that? Mm-hmm. You know, from from is there like a geographical, a broad geographical summary that there I mean, obviously it's way more nuanced than that, but you know, does China handle things substantially different or significantly different than Australia does, than the mm-hmm. United States does when looking at these things? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, I think one general point that can be made regardless of national context is that mining is a very dirty industry. Mining is extraordinarily dirty, extraordinarily dangerous, and it's impossible to mine a place while preserving what... It's impossible to mine a place while preserving the environments and livelihoods that unfolded on the surface. And... You know, so it's an enterprise that's fundamentally incompatible with you know, ideals of pristine or even partial conservation. That said, it's a, it's a socially necessary enterprise to propose that we should stop mining for any reason, let alone environmental grounds, is an absurd proposition that actually doesn't take us anywhere because we do need to mine. 
But there are a couple of things that can be done to mitigate the immediate and long-term environmental and social harms that result from mining and processing rare earth elements. And the first is simply to dump them in a place that is contained and sealed. So one of the most dramatic contrasts that I noted between Bayan Obo in Inner Mongolia and actually a niobium mining facility in central Brazil was the fact that there was a liner on the pond in Brazil and there were sustained dust control and particulate control measures and all sorts of monitoring stations and separate sites for storing more hazardous waste you know that wasn't left out in the open that was protected from rainfall and wind and that sort of thing you know so there are ways to do mining better the problem is that those improved methods of mining often come with a little bit of a price tag and for an industry that is volatile and high-risk and capital-intensive. There's a lot of resistance across the industry in general. This isn't a Chinese thing or a U.S. thing or an Australian thing if there's not an immediate need or necessity. And this brings me to my favorite part, which is given the (laughs) volatile market and given the fact that these things exist on our planet, but given the fact that we seem fine ripping everything up to some extent, (laughs) why... Why are people looking to the moon or to asteroids? Like, what is the motivation there? Oh. Like, where where did that business enterprise start? Ah, that's an excellent question. Well, if you apply a couple of neat, clean, orderly systems of logic to the conundrum of rare earths on Earth, you can actually arrive at some very compelling seemingly compelling conclusions as to why we should be mining rare earth elements in outer space. Uh, The first is that, you know, a strategy that you see across the globe in terms of where to locate mining sites is to put them in places that are far away from major centers of population and also sort of further away from institutions and actors that might hold the mining company accountable politically accountable, environmentally accountable, etc. So one of the great draws of mining in outer space is that provided you're not doing this um, on a place that is hypothetically designated a a world or off-world heritage site, you don't have to complete an environmental impact assessment or a social impact assessment to mine an asteroid. And the draw of that is really quite intense, particularly... You know, if you hear it from some actors in in the industry who, for them, this is the central problem. How do you mine? How do you get permission to mine without running into all sorts of social and political trouble resulting from your necessary mining practices? So from that standpoint, it seems very compelling. There's another standpoint. Again, this is a nice, neat, uh, orderly compelling piece of logic um, that also illustrates, I think, quite vividly that logic is not the same thing as truth or reality, even. And that is that, oh my goodness, we're running out of resources on Earth. We're in a period of peak everything. You know, we can't live in a world where 9 billion people have smartphones and electric vehicles. We just don't have the resources. And the answer is that although, you know, providing iPhones and electric vehicles for 9 billion people does pose some challenges. Those challenges do not arise from situations of absolute scarcity. 
But the logic goes that since we're running out of resources on Earth, then we need to turn to the heavens to harvest the infinite resources of the cosmos. And, you know, there's also an argument that says, look, we're heading toward environmental or ecological catastrophe, so eventually all the world's resources are going to be locked up in environmental protection areas. We're going to regulate ourselves out of our ability to provide for ourselves. So we need to take our, our mining activities to outer space. I love the, the absurdity because it is based in logic. There is, a, there is a very practical and pragmatic reason to support off-Earth mining, and that is to support deep space exploration, human exploration of outer space. Because quite simply, the idea of getting all of our resources from Earth to then explore our solar system and beyond <laughs> is unsustainable. But if we can figure out how to use resources in outer space, that changes the equation dramatically in terms of what might be possible in terms of human exploration of outer space. So from that standpoint, you've had advocates, I think John Lewis is one who wrote the book Mining the Sky decades ago, and you have folks in, the space, in space agencies across the world who are trying to wrap their heads around how to use out the resources available in outer space like water like materials that could be 3d printed into you know pieces for a transport vehicle or what have you in order to advance human scientific exploration of the cosmos and to me that strikes me as an entirely pragmatic reason to advance mining in outer space the rare earth reason the rare earth justification that have that were put forth in the last fa- in the last half decade particularly by proponents of privatized space mining activity the idea that we have to mine asteroids in the moon because we're running out of rare earths or we have to somehow beat china or free ourselves from china's monopoly because china has most of the rare earths were founded on bullshit premises and Hopefully now we're seeing that there are enough reasons to explore outer space. There are enough reasons to advance human exploration of the cosmos that we don't have to lie about it. And we can actually focus on you know, living responsibly and sustainably on Earth. Have we identified places, like real places that we could set up shop? Or is this more like an idea of, oh, what if we did something on the moon? Or are people going like, no, we're going there? Yes, uh, there are specific sites on the moon that are potentially promising mining sites, that are potentially promising places to set up a base from which to support lunar mining operations. Um, There are particular asteroids that um, people are surveying or intend to survey to get a you know mineral profile to get a sense of you know how feasible or potentially profitable it would be to mine this asteroid or that asteroid. We cannot mine other planets because of the planetary protection clause, which prohibits us from basically um, contaminating the water or um, seriously manipulating the resources on another planet. But We can have a field day anywhere else, if it's a moon or an asteroid or who knows what else. Um, And so there's efforts, you know, to uh, 
there's efforts to build a geological catalog of the near-Earth solar system. But I think the thing that... And, there, and there's even plans to capture, you know, comets or asteroids that are coming close to Earth in a sort of net or bag towing system and then bring it into Earth orbit and keep it there as a, um, you know, storage facility. There's, there's all sorts of possibilities here that are being put forward by very serious people. Given that they exist on Earth and given that they're not that rare and given that we can get these things from this planet, and given the difficulties in, say, harnessing an asteroid, which could be insanely dangerous, or you know, setting up a base on the moon, which would be incredibly expensive, is this bull Or do you actually see this as a viable enterprise? You know, it's interesting. Um, I find that it's very risky to make predictions about the rate at which these things will progress. Um, For example, if you would have told me last summer that by Thanksgiving, Obama would have signed a piece of legislation into law that, you know, in direct contravention to the U.S.'s international treaty obligations, recognizes the private property rights of U.S. citizens to outer space resources, I would have said you were crazy. Um, But the fact is, is that is now a law that we have in the U.S. And, um, you know, it recognizes the private property claims exclusively of U.S. citizens and gives U.S. citizens the right to sue in U.S. courts anyone who Um, damages their interests in outer space. Um, And that's something that I couldn't have predicted happening so soon, Um, despite the fact that, you know, private space entrepreneurs were advocating for it. But private entrepreneurs advocate for all sorts of things, right? So why, why did this get federal traction and not other things? I think that the claim that we have to mine rare earths in outer space in order to supply earth-based economies is bull****. I think that the idea and the initiative to mine rare earths and other resources in outer space to support outer space exploration is founded and very well founded. Thank you so much, Julie. This has been a real pleasure. All right, this is awesome. (laughs) Thanks. show is produced by Miles Traer, Leslie Chang, and me, Mike Osborne. Our theme music is by Maserati. We want to thank Pam Matson, Dean of Stanford School of Earth Energy and Environmental Sciences. We also want to thank Tom Hayden. This episode was recorded at KZSU Stanford 90.1. Our website is ginanthro.com, and you can find us on Twitter, at ginanthropocene. That's it for the show this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.